If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading at verse 18, and I will read through to verse 27. Jesus has just exhorted his followers that they uh, should receive uh, the kingdom of God as little children. That is, they should receive it the way a child would, with the uh, openness and the hope that a little one would. And now we read these words. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would aid us now as we come to your word. Uh, aid us, Heavenly Father, in seeing and understanding. And we pray by your grace, living God, responding uh, to this interaction of this man with Jesus. Lord, we pray that that which took place some 2,000 years ago would be vividly uh, brought before our hearts and our minds, and Lord, that you would use this for the eternal good uh, of all here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you could ask anyone a particular question and get from them the answer that is true and uh, precise and exact, what question would you want the answer to? So I want to I pose that particularly to you young people. Do you have a burning question in your heart and in your mind right now that, that if I said to you, look, uh, let's say maybe again, well, I'm going to go ahead and back and use my time machine here, right? I've gone 50 years into the future and I come back and I say to you, I convince you, look, here's my time machine I went 50 years and I saw all of you, all of you that are still going to be alive. <laughs> Is there anything you'd want to know? Some of you, would you want to know, well, what do I wind up doing? What kind of work do I do? Do I do, I do something important? Do I, do I make a lot of money? Do I get married? Do I have kids? Do I have a happy life? Do I have a successful life? Do I go to school? Whatever it is. What, what, would, what would you like to know? If you could know anything from anyone, if you had one question, it's only one question that you could ask, well, what would that one thing be? Have it in your mind? 
We're going to be considering here tonight a question that I am going to uh, lay out as the most important question anyone could ever ask, and they asked it of the most important person who's ever lived. So let's change our scenario a little bit now, and you have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the Lord Jesus has come, and he is here in this room tonight. And all of you can line up, and you can, every single one of you can ask him one thing. You could ask him a favor. You could ask him to bear his arm and to do something for you or something for someone that you love. Or again, you could ask him a question. Now, I hope you wouldn't waste it on some theological so tell me the truth actually now about, you know, uh, are pedo-baptists wrong or something like that? Uh, uh, if you could ask him one thing and he would answer you, what would it be? It is the question that was asked of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life that I want to consider here tonight? And I want to begin by considering the fact that this was an extraordinary question asked by an extraordinary man and asked in an extraordinary manner. It was also answered in a very extraordinary way. But let's consider together what the question was. We want to consider who asked it and we want to consider how he asked it. And then we're going to look at how Jesus answered and how that man responded to the answer of Jesus. So this man comes and here's the question that he asks. It's the question again, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question that was asked by the jailer in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do in order that I would have eternal life? Now, I suggest to you that this is a rather extraordinary question, because I wonder how many of you would ask it, that if the Lord Jesus were here, and again, you were given the opportunity to ask him any question or for anything, if you're not a Christian, what would you ask? Well, we have the records in the Bible of people asking a lot of things of Jesus. Would you heal my servant? Would you heal my daughter? Would you settle a dispute for me? Would you tell my sister to do a certain thing? Would you do this? Would you do that? And yet here is a man who asked the Lord Jesus this question, what do I have to do that I can have eternal life? Now, sadly, this is not a question that many people ask. And if people do ask it, they're generally not in the condition of this young man. So let me share a few things about this young man that help us to understand the extraordinary nature of this question. Now, the Bible tells us several things about him. Now, if, you're, if you uh, have not been in church before or rarely been at church, you may not be familiar with this Bible narrative. This is a very well-known story, and it is generally called the story of the rich young ruler. Now, this is uh, a narrative. You find it in Matthew's gospel. You find it in Mark, and you find it here in Luke. And each one of them give a little bit of information about him. And so one of the passages tells us that the one who asked this question was a young man. A young man. 
Now, when you think about a young man, I don't know what, what comes to your mind. I think for most of us, uh, you get to be a certain age, and maybe you say, well, you know, 16, 17, 18, to maybe 30, 35. Now, the older I get, the younger you all get. <laughs> and so I, I can quite happily look at a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old and say, how you doing, young man? And they think, well, I'm not so young. I'm going, oh, no, you are. You're very, very young. Well, in the ancient world of this time, young was, by most commentators, you were between 24 and 40 years old. I don't know how they came up with that and, and, and how they locked that in, but you'll read that regularly if you study the commentaries. A young man, 24, 25, maybe 26, 27 years old, starting out in life, his whole life in front of him. And young men like that and younger teenagers aren't often thinking in regard to what's the great question what's the burning thing in your life well it's usually again maybe something about the future the near future that you're very anxious about should I go to school what should I study what kind of job do I want to have what do I want to be when I grow up remember all that those, those kinds of questions what do you want to do what do you want to do with your life what's your life intended to be why are you on this earth maybe you think in terms of that but here's someone thinking in terms of what the bible calls eternal life and so here's a young man who knew that there was more to life than what he could touch and smell and see and hear he knew there was a world to come but the bible tells us for certainly the bible says there is a hereafter and the Bible does tell us that God has put eternity into our hearts, that God has placed into the conscience of every person the knowledge that there is coming a day when we will die. And, and after that, something, now the Bible says after that, the judgment, but surely after that, so that we ask questions when a person dies that we don't ask when a beloved pet dies. When your dog dies, the, kid, the kids might say, little kids might say, where's Scruffy now? And your answer might be, well, Scruffy's in the ground. Is Scruffy in heaven? You generally don't ask that. When you see a dead deer on the side of the road, you don't think, I wonder where that deer is. The plethora of dead squirrels, I wonder where they are now. But when you hear that a, a bus has crashed and young people have died, or that there has been some event in which multiple people have perished, you do think to yourself, I wonder, were any of them ready? Were they prepared? Where are their souls? And, and that's what they want to know. That's what people want to know. They go when they have a funeral and they want to talk about where are they now? Why? Why do we do that as human beings? Because there is within us the reality that there is a world outside of this world. And this man indicates that not only is there heaven, but he's indicating that there is also a hell. And this young man has some fear that when the last day comes or when he dies and he stands before the living God, the God who takes his law very seriously, even as we have read tonight, and he gives an account for his life. He's fearful that he will not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, but depart from me, you cursed. And so he's wondering, what can I do to settle this issue? Is there a way that I can know? Is there something that I can do? Is there some knowledge I need to obtain in order that I, though I'm a young man, 
And death might be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years away. But is there a way that I can live now that I know that I have eternal life? And that should I perish, that I would be able to stand before the God that sinless angels say is holy, 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 and that he will receive me? It's a very strange question for a young man to ask. And again, as I, I, as I stated earlier, it's a strange question for virtually anyone to ask. I wonder in our collective history here, how many of you had someone come to you and say to you, hey, hey Mike, or, or hey, Larry, or hey, Daryl, or uh, hey, um, Becky, whoever, what do I have to do that I can have eternal life? And some of you say, well, my children have asked it, maybe at one point or other, one of our little ones. But, but in our life out there, who has come up to us, even Somebody like me, is, I'm, I'm a preacher and people know that I'm a pastor, but rarely in my 46 years of following Jesus have I been asked this bluntly, this kind of a question. But not only was he young, the Bible indicates that he was moral and religious. You say, now, now, now where do you get that he was religious? Well, we read here in verse 18, now a certain ruler now, in that world, this particular word for ruler indicated that he was either a leader in the synagogue or that he was perhaps a member of that organization called the Sanhedrin, which was a group of religious leaders who watched over the lives of the people in the land at that time. So that he was a man who was acquainted with the scriptures if he was a synagogue leader, he, in, in our jargon, he went to church. He took his place on the pew every Sabbath day. He would have had times when he would have read the word. He would have prayed. He would have been participating uh, in the life of the meetings. And if somebody were to do a theological exam with him, he could probably pass it. But not only was he religious, he was moral. Because now we all know there are people who claim to be religious who are not moral, that there are preachers who teach the word and some who even know theology who are not good people. But when our Lord quizzes him about the law of God and he lays out several uh, of the commandments, do not commit adultery, the, sixth, uh, the uh, seventh commandment, do not murder, the sixth commandment, do not steal. The eighth commandment, do not bear false witness. The ninth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, he's able to say, and, and, and understand the position that he's coming from, all these I have kept from my youth. So sometimes you meet somebody and they say, I'm a, I'm a really good person. And you know, somebody just told me this the other day. They had this conversation with somebody. I'm a really good person. And they said, what do you mean by that? And do you know what their go-to was? And this happens all the time. I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Welcome to 98% or 99% of the population. That's it? I should go to heaven because I've never killed anybody. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry with somebody? I mean, really angry. You ever had a little scenario play out in your mind where you took a vengeance on somebody, where you hurt somebody, where you destroyed somebody? You know, you did that in the eyes of the Lord. I'm a good person. You got a porn problem? 
Well, I mean, not every day. Oh, but you do. Well, yeah. You ever defrauded a girl? Ever taken advantage of somebody? You ever used your power over them to extract some favor from them or whatever the case? But you know what? This guy here, Jesus says to him, now, Jesus doesn't contradict him. Jesus doesn't dig any deeper. Now, we'll get at what our Lord's doing here. But our Lord asks him these questions. He's able to say, you know what? I, he is the quintessential good kid. He's the kind of kid that the parents probably would have said he never gave us any trouble. Now his brother or whatever they might have said. But you know, but not him. He's a good kid. He was a parent's dream. A Jewish parent's dream. He's attained to a certain degree of status in the civil and religious world. He's a good kid. He didn't cheat on his wife. He tells the truth. You ask him a question, you can trust what he says. Actually believe him. What a horrible thing it is when you talk to somebody and you can't trust what they say. You have to always wonder, are they telling me the truth? I don't know. This is what they said, but I don't know if it's real or not. But for him, it was. So he was, a, he was a young man. He was a moral man. He was a religious man. And the Bible also tells us that he was a rich man. In fact, the Bible says he was very rich. Now, the word that's used in the Bible for rich is a word that means to have an abundance of riches. And then it means he had a very abundant riches. That is, he's the kind of guy that would have never had to worry about financing anything. He's the kind of guy probably you don't have to worry about budgeting and do I have enough and what's going to happen at the end of the month, you know. Some poor guy goes to a, to a man and says, oh, I want to marry your daughter. And he has the boldness to say, well, what's your job? Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing, and how much money do you make? Why do you want to know that? Well, because, you know, you're going to have to, like, live somewhere, and my wife's probably, or your wife's going to probably want food and stuff like that. Well, here's a guy, you would never have asked that. Anything and everything he wanted. Never on layaway, never an installment plan, never having to wonder, do I have enough? Your house burns down, let's go buy another one. Now, there are people like that. And he was one of them. Now, here's the reality. And, of course, this is part of what Jesus is saying, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because these are his, this is his heaven. Because having enough and having an abundance is, for him, his heaven. I had a friend of mine who's a missionary and has often lived in some rather stark circumstances. And he was in America on a furlough. And, and if you live in a place like this, I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just, I'm just using this as an illustration. He was visiting somebody who was a believer, part of a church. And this guy had one of these houses that backed up to a beautiful golf course. I don't know how much the house costs, you know, gated community. And they're sitting there out in the back and they're watching all of this, the lake and the golf course and all of this. And my missionary friend said, who'd want to go to heaven if you had this? You understand the question? You understand that? I mean, you're young, you're strong, you're vibrant, you've got money, you've got respectability, you're moral, you're good. And yet, you know what else he was? He was doomed. He had no peace with God. He, he, he feared that he would not go to heaven when he died. And that thought gripped him to the point where he was willing 
to make a public spectacle of himself. Because what we read in the other gospels is that he came running to Jesus and he knelt down before him to ask him this question. Now, in my life, I have had, I have had people very broken, very upset, wanting to talk to me about important things. I've never had anything like that happen. And certainly, if it did, I, 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 and if it were somebody who, was, who had all of the accoutrements of wealth, I mean, what was the guy dressed like? And if you've ever heard the story, anybody open up the parable of the, par- of the, of the prodigal son, and you know, in the story of the prodigal son, the father comes running. And, and you may know enough of that, of the, of the, his, of the uh, culture of the day, that that was something almost scandalous to do. Rich men don't run. And for him to run to his son and throw his arms around him and hug him and kiss him and receive him was something of the scandal of the love of God as Jesus was teaching it. Well, here's a man in so earnest. He wanted to know the answer to this question so badly. And bless God, he went to the right person. Today, you could go to many religious people and and say to them, I don't know how many, I I don't know, in all kinds of different religions, what do I got to do to go to heaven? Well, pay us some money, sprinkle some water on your head, say a few, this prayer, that prayer, give to the poor, whatever it is. And if you do that, you can go away. Don't worry about it. You'll have eternal life or just be good. God's so loving. God's so caring. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Well, he didn't believe in a God like that. And the Bible doesn't believe in a God like that. But he was in such earnest. I was reminded recently, I used to have a guy, I had a guy call me. He used to call me most long ago. He was a retired homicide detective, and I guess he, got a, he, he just got on the phone after he retired and just called churches and asked weird questions. He asked some of the most bizarre questions. But the first time we talked on the phone, he, 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 he introduced himself in this way. He said his name, and he said, I'm saved in 27,000 different religions, and I'm wondering if I'm saved in yours. And I said, well, No. Uh, I could tell by the way. Now, what, what he was, he was not asking, I'm in desperate straits, what do I need to do? He, he wasn't saying, look, I, I've, I've cried out to God, but I've got no peace of soul. He wasn't doing anything like that. It was a game to him. It was a religious game. I like to call, so I, I call a Muslim and I ask him, and he says this, oh, I'm, I'm saved as a Muslim, I'm saved as a Hindu, I'm saved as a Buddhist, I'm saved as this, I'm saved as that. And it was all a game to him. It wasn't like he was just like, you know, touching all the bases. But here's a man who was earnest enough. And you wonder why, what is it? Well, by the fact that he asked Jesus, it would indicate that he had seen or heard something in Jesus that deeply disturbed his religious peace. You see, all his life he would have been taught, well, you're one of the chosen ones. You've been circumcised. You're you're of the seed of Abraham. And maybe he heard something like God is able to make from these stones, John the Baptist, children of Abraham. 
And maybe he realized that there were those in our Lord's teaching who were like cups washed on the outside, but inside full of corruption. And maybe he heard that there were those who strained out gnats and swallowed camels who made do with the minutia of the law, but missed the whole point of it. Maybe he'd heard Jesus say that even as in, in the context of necessity of becoming like helpless little children before God, and he realized that God was not impressed with his religion and his morality. And the question so gripped him that he went to our Lord and he ran and he asked him, what do I have to do that I, have, that I could have eternal life? Again, his great fear was that he did not possess what was necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this became, at least for a time, the central issue of his life. He recognized rightly that it didn't matter how moral he was, how good he was, if he were to be lost. It didn't matter how much money he had. It didn't matter how strong he was. You know, there's some way I almost would, I, I wonder what he looked like. You get the idea he was good looking too. I mean, he's a guy who was probably the total package. <laughs> but it didn't matter. Didn't matter how young, didn't matter how strong, didn't matter how vibrant, didn't matter how impressive he was. His position in the synagogue, the admiration of religious people would not put his soul at peace if he were to spend but a moment in hell. I mean, what is all of that? If that's the end. And so it is a most extraordinary question. But now consider that our Lord answers it in a most extraordinary way. If you were, if you're a member of this church and you know your Bible, and you heard me answering somebody in this way, you would think, Jim's lost his mind. He's a heretic. Or he's doing something that I really don't understand. Because if somebody came to you and said to you, what must I do to have eternal life? What would you say to them? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, right? That's what we would say. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the good news. This is the gospel. You wouldn't say to him, listen, let me, well, let me, let me, let me quiz you on the, let me quiz you on the law. Let's talk about, you know, and let's, let's take them in order. The fifth commandment, sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, ninth commandment, the 10th commandment. Have you been, it might seem, have you been good? Now, is our Lord saying that the law, that if you can keep the law, no, he's not saying that, is he? Because our Lord, our Lord does not have a different gospel than the apostles have. And the Bible does tell us that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And the Bible tells us that all of our accumulated righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. That as none of us can come and that offer to God on the last day, look, I looked around, I found all the good works that I've done. Like somebody comes and the, you know, the pizza man wants a tip and you don't have any cash on you and you run to the couch and you try to find some quarters or something like that and you give it to him and, and say, well, I hope you're satisfied. I, I've scrounged the house. I've scrounged my life for good things. 
I can't even remember. I, mean, I know I've done some good stuff. I'm sure there was a widow somewhere or a little kid or Kit and I pulled out of a dangerous situation. And, and surely, Lord, that's good enough. For you, the holy God, the God who spoke the world, the God who created me, the God who, who gave the law. Now, our Lord is using the law, obviously, to expose his far deeper need. Even our Lord's question here, why do you call me good? There is no one good but one that is God. What, again, seemingly a very strange response. But he's getting him to think rightly about God and rightly about his soul because what our Lord is going to do in, in saying to him, using the second table of the law, and he thinks at least externally, he's done fairly well in the second table. I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anyone. I was basically good around my mom and my dad. I'm generally an honest person. I'm content. Yeah, he's content. Sure, you're going to be content. You're you know, but, but there are rich people who are not content. But he's, you know, again, he looked at that part and he did well. But what our Lord doesn't deal with is the first, what's called the first table of the law. And the issue of, do you have an idol? Now, you see, in quoting the law, Jesus is reminding us of the whole of the law. James says this, doesn't he? James says that to break one part of the law is to be guilty of all. If you say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a killer, but I'm, uh, or, uh, I, I, uh, I don't commit adultery, but I do murder, well, you're still a lawbreaker or work it the other way around, whatever the case might be. Well, if you, all you have to do is break one law to be a lawbreaker. I mean, nobody goes before a judge and, and the judge says, you know, you killed 14 people. Yeah, but I paid my taxes. You know, you don't, so what? You know, I, I was a good kid. I obeyed my mom and dad. I got good grades. Nobody, nobody cares. This is what you did. We're going to talk about what you did because in doing what you did, you've broken the law. And what the law does is the law, in this sense, it accuses and it exposes and it condemns and points you away from itself to another. And so our Lord answers him. Now, the Bible tells us in, in Mark's account that Jesus said this loving him. So that whatever our Lord says and whatever our Lord does here, he speaks truth and he speaks it in love. Now, Jesus could have softened the answer. He could have told him that all was well, not to worry, everybody gets to heaven. He didn't commend him for how good he was, how impressive it was that he'd kept the second table of the law. He doesn't tell him to become no, uh, to become more religious. No, he speaks the truth to him. And he speaks to him personally. Now, Jesus would have known his heart. Bible says that he knew what was in men. And he knew what was in this person. And despite all of his trappings, he knew that this man has a guilty conscience. He's troubled. There's something in his conscience. Spirit of God's working in him and showing him that despite all of his religion and all of his ethnicity, that he was not good enough to go to heaven, that something was wrong. So he's going to probe. And in quoting the second table in this sense, he really is bringing to mind the whole of the law because the whole of the law goes together. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. 
The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not bow down to it or serve it. And very often, is it not the reality that those idols are idols of gold? Jesus had taught that no man can serve two masters, for he will love the one and and despise the other. You cannot serve God and your riches. You cannot be enslaved to your, he uses the word mammon your riches, and be enslaved to God. Because whenever there is a conflict between who God is and what God wants you to do and what your wealth is and what your wealth wants you to do, you're going to go with one or with the other. And so our Lord exposes him in this regard. And he lays out for him a scenario. He says, tell you what to do. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Become my disciple. You've come to me for an answer to the question. Let me give you an answer. Now again, is this the gospel? No, the gospel is not sell what you have. But our Lord does in this make a promise. If you will deal with your sin, if you will forsake the thing that is keeping you from the kingdom, whatever it is, there's treasure in heaven. Now, when you compare treasure in heaven, what is it? So the Bible tells us some things about treasure in heaven, right? Moth can't eat it. Rust can't destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. The treasures in heaven are imperishable and they have a glory that is all their own that if we could see them, it would make anything Bill Gates has or Elon Musk or whoever else in the world, you would say they've got, if they have all of that, but miss this, they have nothing. And to give up everything and gain that is not to be the poorer, Jesus is not encouraging him to poverty. He's encouraging him to greater wealth. So let, let, let's say you, you, somebody convinced you to play the market tomorrow. And let's say all that you had, all that you had was, uh, was $2,000. It's all the money you had in the world. And somebody says to you, I want you to give me everything you have. Because this is a sure bet. And it pays off. And that night, you get a check for $4.5 million. How many of you would think, yeah, but it took me $2,000? That that four and a half cost me everything that I... Would you think in that category? You You would be so glad you gave away what you had in light of the true riches or the greater riches that you received. Our Lord is doing this in order to expose him. And expose him it does. For we read, for when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. For he was very rich. Jesus, you have an answer? I've got, I, I do have an answer. Jesus, I don't like your answer. Now, it's sorrow. It made him sorrowful. It made him very sad. All right, I'm going to give you one little bit of potential Bible trivia. 
I'm not saying this is the case, but it's very interesting that some Bible scholars have put this together. In Mark's gospel, following our Lord's arrest, there's a story of a young man that was following Jesus, and he only had a sheet on. And it got stripped off him, and he ran away naked. What an odd little story. And some have said, it's this guy. That he went ahead and sold all that he had and was following Jesus. Now, is that the case? I don't know. Fascinating little thing to think on. The Lord would reveal that to us. But it's very interesting that Mark should include that strange detail uh, in the passion of our Savior. Some of you might hear all of this and you think to yourself, this is a very strange scenario because it doesn't have anything to do with me. I, I mean, I, I, I might be and I might be young and, and obviously in, in preaching these messages, I do have very much the young people in view. And you say to yourself, I, I can barely rub two dimes together. Uh, it's, it's, it's not my wealth, but listen, it's usually something. And if you were perhaps for some reason to become so troubled about your soul, so anxious for your soul, and that the thought of do I have eternal life became to you more than an occasional consideration on a particular Sunday or when your mom and dad are laying into you and they're laying down the law and they say, you know, if you keep this way, you're going you're gonna to go to hell. And maybe as you're drifting off to sleep, maybe you think about it and you, you think about what it would be like to follow Jesus. And you hear sermons about the glory of Christ and how much better he is than anything that the world has to offer and how there are certain treasures to be had in him that you can't get. And there's a deeper satisfaction in him that he is the water of life and that you can drink of him and it'll satisfy your soul and the bread of life. And if you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. And there are times when you think, yeah, I, that would be good. And then it's off to something else. But if the Lord were to say to you, look, this is what you need to do. And again, it, it, I don't know how many of you he would say what he said to this young man, but he might say to you, you're going to have to deal with your pride. Lord, what do I need to do? It might be a relationship that you have to deal with. It might be some possession of yours that you have that you think, that, that if Jesus gets a hold of me and gets a hold of my life and get a hold of my desires, there may be sins that you want to pursue. There may be sins that you think that you can't conquer or whatever the case might be, and they prevent you. One thing you lack, one thing you lack. In your own heart and your own mind, if you were to go to the Lord Jesus on that Palestinian road and bow down before him and say him and look him in the eye and say, what do I have to do? Now, you know the broad answer to that is you got to trust him. But to trust him, sometimes there are things you need to lay, lay down. Faith is the empty hand. It's an empty hand that lays hold of Christ. And so we've seen it's an extraordinary question. It's extraordinary answer. And then there are these extraordinary responses. And very quickly, there's the extraordinary response of the rich young ruler. He went away sad. The word used describes a cloudy, gloomy sky. 
He walked away. And the problem was not so much that he was sorrowful. It may be that Jesus is going to have us deal with something that will produce sorrow within. The problem was that he walked away. Now the disciples ask a question. And the question is, now Jesus, let's go to Jesus first. And then to the disciples. Jesus says, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, taking that just by itself, you understand that because we live in a rich nation where you can seemingly, at least the hope is that you can purchase happiness, that it's right around the corner. It's part of the American story and the American dream. And that the thought is, well, I don't, I don't need this pie in the sky by and by. I can just buy my way out of it, work my way out of it, medicate my way out of it, friend my way out of it, entertain myself out of whatever I'm feeling, whatever I am lacking. And Jesus says how hard it is. And he uses an illustration. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty funny illustration, isn't it? We've talked about this before. You know, have you, I don't know, have you tried to put a, a thread in a needle? That's not particularly easy. At least it's not easy for me. I probably have to put on my cheaters, and my hands are still fairly steady at 60. But... You know, I still have missed it many times. And that's a little tiny thread. Yeah, but it's smaller than the eye of the needle. At least it's supposed to be. And Jesus says, try to get a camel through it. Well, you look at it and you go, I can't go nose first. But if I start with the tail and, you know, lick it a little bit, twirl it, maybe I can get it through. And if I keep going and going, you know, it it is meant to be a, a ridiculous illustration. It's made you say, well, you know what? You can't do that. I mean, you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. You can't get a 747 through the doors of this building. You can't fit the Empire State Building in here. Whatever the case, maybe you're just trying to say, it's a ludicrous thing. And no more can you do that and try to hope that you can go to heaven and ignore the words of Jesus or go to heaven while you're trusting and hoping in someone or something else can no more do that than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle. And so our Lord responds to him. And you notice here, Jesus doesn't go after him. You know, some of you know what it's like. You, 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 you plan this. You're going to go buy a car. And you're going to go to a salesman. And you know the salesman's going to give you a price that you're not going to pay. And that your whole plan is you're going to make a dramatic hump of it and you're going to stand up and walk out the door and even as you're doing it you're waiting for him to say what wait come back let me see what i can do now jesus would be considered the worst evangelist in the world wouldn't he i mean you talk about having a fish on the hook and jesus can't land him But Jesus doesn't say to him, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, sorry. You've obviously misunderstood what I've said. It's it's obvious you're very much in earnest. You really do want to go to heaven. 
let's work out an installment plan. Let's lessen, let's ease the laws of discipleship in your case. What are you willing to do? Let's just start, let's tell you what, let's, let's, you're, you're a millionaire, billionaire, let's start with a few thousand. Can you give that to the poor? And maybe follow me just a little bit. Would that be okay? You, you okay with, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't change the demands of the gospel in order to win him. Men must come to God on his terms. They must obey what he has laid out. But then the disciples ask this question. Well, who then can get saved? And if this guy's walking away, Jesus... And this is about as good as it gets. And if we had that happen here, if I was in the midst of preaching and some poor person cried out, Jim, what do I got to do? I mean, you're preaching about my soul. What do I have to do? Tell me what I have to do. And you would be thrilled and we would want to tell the story of how that person came to faith. And and somebody says afterward, well, what happened? Is he, nah, he walked away, never came back. And how discouraging this is. I mean, he's religious, he's, he's moral, he's in earnest, he's come to you. I mean, Lord, how does anybody get saved? <clears throat> if salvation is like this, then how does anybody? And now our Lord gives the most hopeful words, as hopeful words as you will find anywhere, find anywhere in the Bible. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And that the hope of things, and that what we talked about recently, but God, which some have said are the two sweetest words in all the Bible. We were like this. When you talk about hopeless, helpless, dead in our sins and trespasses, enslaved by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Bad news, but then the good news, but God, who's rich in mercy. And Peter goes on to say, we, le- we left everything and followed you. And what, is he saying? what he's saying is this. I- I'm proof of this. I mean, I didn't have billions. But in my little world, my boat and my net, in my home and my life that Jesus thoroughly upended. On the day when he said, I want you to leave that, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave your life, and I'm going to call you to die to yourself. I'm going to call you to bear a cross. I'm going to call you to a way of life that is a way that follows me. And, and Peter would have said, if you'd said to Peter a few weeks earlier or before he met Jesus, Peter, would you leave this for anything? I wouldn't leave this for anything. And then he meets a man, and he walks away. And he says, God did that in me and for me. And so we ask the question, what does all this mean for us? Well, one of the things it means is that we need to answer the ultimate question. Again, for all of us, the answer is very simple. You need to, you need to look to Christ. You need to turn from yourself. You need to repent of your sins. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But if I were to ask you, what is it that's keeping you? And I, I hope at least you'll be able to answer that question. You ought to be able to answer that question. And whether you tell anybody or not, in the theater of your own conscience, in, the, in your own heart, and in your own mind, what is it that's keeping you from Christ? Because we should all, by God's grace, be able to say, I know the answer, that I have eternal life. We need to part with whatever it is that may be keeping us from the Savior. But I want to finish by saying this. We need to put great confidence in God. Because once the Lord does this work, and once the Lord shows us the riches of the glory of the person of Christ, what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, we can have great confidence in God to show this to us. And so we should have confidence in God, first of all, if you're in the condition of the rich young ruler, to change you. God can change you. And if your thought is, I don't have the strength, I don't have the power, listen, there's nothing that's impossible with God. But then for those of us who love you and are burdened for you and pray for you and think about you and labor for you in a variety of ways, there's nothing impossible with God. I read heartbreaking stories sometimes of parents, my child, my son, my daughter is involved in this life and, and in that life. I've, I've, I've been on the phone with people. I've exchanged emails with some who have said, my, my son or my daughter is in this lifestyle. And to be able to say, you know what? I know someone who was too. And the Lord changed them. Such were some of you, the apostle is able to say. Such were some of you. Why? Because with men, it's impossible. With therapy, it's impossible, perhaps. With friends, it's impossible, but not with God. And so I ask the people of God here to bear witness. Can the son make you free? Can he change what you thought could never be changed? Can he take what was hell bound and fit them for heaven? Isn't that our story? It's our prayer that that will become your story as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments to spend in your presence and with your word open to us. Our Father, we do pray that you would take this event in the life of our Lord and the event of this young man and use it. Father, it's our prayer you use it even now and Use it tonight. But Lord, if not, let that word fall into the ground and over the days to germinate. And Lord, may you bring about a harvest of souls in our congregation that we can't do, but that you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.